571, Psalm 7. <clears throat> and I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, the song of the slandered, Psalm 7. Psalm 7. And this is what the Word of God says. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it into pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Few things are more painful and frustrating than being accused of something that you did not do. Leaders know all too well the crushing pain that comes with being misunderstood, misrepresented, and maligned. But this pain is not limited to leaders. False, false accusations have the ability to cripple even the strongest among us. For all of us, at one time or another, have been misunderstood, misrepresented, and maligned. That's why Charles Spurgeon in his commentary on Psalm 7 said this, If God was slandered in Eden, we shall surely be maligned in the land of sinners. David understood what it was like to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, and to be maligned. He understood the deep pain that accompanies slander. And while we do not know the full background of this psalm, the superscription at the beginning of the psalm gives us some insight into David's plight. It is referred to as a shagayon, and it occurs only once in the book of Psalms. The meaning for this word is unknown. Some have proposed that it comes from an Assyrian word meaning a lament. Others have related it to a Hebrew word that means to go astray or to wander. Others have suggested that it refers to the irregular rhythm of the psalm as it is sung, meaning it is a passionate psalm that is full of strong emotion. And you'll notice in the superscription that this psalm was sung by David, and it indicates that Psalm 7 was a vocal solo full of intense passion and emotion. The superscription also tells us that this psalm was written concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. 
Now, the historical narratives concerning David do not tell us who Cush was or what he said. But when you study the psalm and you realize the accusations that are leveled against David in this psalm, the words of Cush would seem to be along the lines of, word, of the words of Saul's kinsman Shimei, who cursed David as he fled from his son Absalom into the mountains. What we do know is this. Psalm 7 is the lowest point that we have experienced in the life of David in his saga with his son Absalom. This psalm is a lament. It is a prayerful song that expresses perplexity and anguish and even discouragement during a time of overwhelming circumstances. As a lament, it also reflects the confident hope of David and his trust in his compassionate and faithful God. This psalm is a fiery imprecation invoking God's wrath and judgment upon David's enemies. In Psalm 7, we hear the song of the slandered. David's words give encouragement to those who cry out to God for relief when they are being slandered and falsely accused. This psalm gives us hope. It reminds us that no matter what threat we are facing, whether from people or problems or the pressures of life, God is our shield. God is our defense. And in this psalm, David teaches us how to respond when we are misunderstood, misrepresented, and maligned. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, David's honesty before the Lord. In verse number 1, he describes his position. He says, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. David begins this psalm with a note of confidence. In the midst of all of his trouble, in the midst of the pursuit of his enemies, David knew where his help could be found. And instead of questioning God or doubting if God was still there, David declared that in the midst of his trouble, he was taking his refuge in Yahweh the Lord. He was literally saying, in you, Yahweh, in you, God, I am safe. You are my refuge. And David understood that when you place yourself in God's protective care, you'll find blessing and joy and shelter in his wings. The psalmist in Psalm 2 declared this reality. He said, blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord. There is a blessing for the people of God when they go to God and God alone as their refuge and their safety and their security. Why, David even said himself in Psalm 5 and verse 11, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. There is a blessing for those who find their refuge and their strength in God, in God alone. There is a joy for those who find their refuge and strength in God, in God alone, no matter what is going on in their lives. And so like David, when people falsely accuse you and create problems for you, do you go to God and God alone to find your refuge and your security? In verses 1 and 2, David moves from his position to his plea. Look at what he says. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. And David feels in these verses that he is a hunted man. And he pleads with God in verse 1, notice, to save him and to deliver him. And those two words, save and deliver, convey the idea of being removed from imminent danger and harm. David feels that his enemies are pressing in tight 
all around him. He's been misunderstood. He's been misrepresented. His character has been maligned. And he looks to God and God alone for his safety and his security. And he cries out with a passionate plea, Save me, God. Deliver me. I'm finding my refuge and my hope in you. And you'll notice in verse 2 that David uses vivid imagery to describe his enemies as a powerful, deadly lion that is ready to tear his soul apart, to put it into pieces. And when you study the Psalms, you'll find that the lion is the most common description in the book of Psalms for enemies. It's also important to note, and I don't think there's a coincidence here, it is one of the strongest pictures of the Christian's greatest enemy in the New Testament. Because Peter says that Satan, our adversary, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And David is surrounded and he's feeling the pressure of his enemies as a lion ready to pounce on his prey and rip it to pieces. You can hear David's vulnerability in this song in verse 2 as he reminds God that if God doesn't save him, his enemies will rip his soul to shreds. They will render it into pieces. David understood what you and I need to understand, that God invites us to place the condition of our souls before him. That God invites us to put our anxiety and our fears and anything that is troubling us in our desperate situations upon him because he stands ready to save and deliver. That's why David penned these words later in Psalm 55 verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will sustain you. It's personal. David isn't just speaking of himself. He's speaking to you. Do you hear that this morning? That in your desperation, in your anxiety, in your fear, in your worry, and in whatever situation has you pinned in and surrounded, when you go to God for refuge and you pour your heart out before him, he will sustain you. Oh, don't miss what's happening in the text, friends. David is speaking honestly before the Lord right where he is. And just as David spoke honestly before the Lord, you and I can speak honestly before the Lord right where we are. After all, you can't surprise him with anything that's going on in your life. He already knows about it. So why are you trying to hide it in the first place? Bear your soul and your burden in honesty before the Lord. I wonder what need or care you need to cast on him today. Maybe it's a false accusation that's been leveled against you. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's chronic pain. Maybe it's a financial concern. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a fear or a worry. Oh, friends, understand what David understood. He will sustain you when you cast your burden upon him. In verses 3 to 5, David moves from his plea to his posture. And look at what he says in these verses. These are powerful words. Oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Now you need to understand that in verses 3 through 5, David is not claiming sinful or sinless perfection. He is emphatically denying the charges that have been leveled against him. He speaks of these accusations as wrong. It literally means to deviate from the right course. And David is declaring before the Lord that he has acted in a straight way, in a right way, and that he has not been crooked in his dealings with anyone. 
And in verses 3 through 5, he uses a curse motif. You'll notice it. He uses an if-then formula. Do you see it in the text? He uses the word if repeatedly in verses 3, 4, and 5. And at the end of verse 5, he uses the word then. It's his way of expressing innocence. And the implication in these verses is this. If he has done the things that he has been accused of, then he deserves to be cursed by God. Now notice what's happening. Instead of defending himself against his accusers, David is humbling himself. And David is inviting God, the one in whom he has taken refuge, to examine him. It's as if David understood what would be written in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, where the writer of Hebrews says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. David understood what you and I need to understand, that nothing can be hidden from God. And David is laying himself before the Lord in an audience of one in full honesty. And he's saying, God, I don't feel that I have done anything wrong. I feel I've been straight and right and accurate and true in all of my dealings. And so, God, I'm inviting you willingly and openly to examine me in my innermost parts. And if you found that I've done something wrong, then God, curse me, punish me, bring consequences to my life. You ever talk like that to God? That's what David did. And in verses 3 and 4, he summarizes the accusations that were leveled against him. He says, if I've repaid my friend with evil, if I've plundered my enemy without cause. And then in verse 5, he outlines the curses that should come upon him if God deems him guilty. He says, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let the enemy trample my life to the ground. Let the enemy lay my glory in the dust. These curses in verse 5 are graphic. Listen to them. When he says, let my enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, David is referring, I believe, to personal suffering. He's saying, God, let me suffer physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually if I've done wrong. When he says, trample my life, he is referring to the death penalty. It's a picture of a potter who takes a lump of clay and throws it to the ground and smashes it with his feet and breaks it apart so that he can work with it. It's the picture of when the grapes are harvested off the vine and they're put in a big barrel and someone steps on them and squashes them and removes the juice. It is a word, this word trample, that is used in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 33 to describe the horses that trampled the wicked queen Jezebel. It is a powerful word. God, let them take my life. And destroy it. And then thirdly, he says, lay my glory in the dust. This refers to his reputation and his position. God is his glory. God is his reputation. And he says, God, if you find me guilty, then let my reputation be ruined. Let me be destroyed. Take my life and crush me in the dust. Now look at your Bible. And look at how verse 5 ends. Selah. What are you supposed to do when you see that? Do you remember? Pause. Think about it. Think about what David is doing in these first five verses. God, I've been misunderstood. God, I've been misrepresented. God, I've been maligned. And there's not one single thing I can do about it. 
I can't defend myself. I can't make it go away. And so, God, I'm coming to you and you alone because you are my God. And I'm taking refuge in you. And I'm finding shelter in the shadow of your wings. God, save me from what's happening to me. Deliver my life. God, if you don't do it, I'm going to be ripped into pieces. And here I am laying myself before you in complete honesty, God. Search everything in my life. And if I'm guilty, if I've done these things, correct me, discipline me. I'm entrusting myself to your care. There's a weightiness in these words. His words show that he believes he's not guilty, that he's innocent. And he's willing to stake everything that matters to him in his life on God and God's verdict of him. Well, friends, there's a lesson to be learned in these verses. You and I will need to come back to these verses at one time or another in our lives. And the question is, when we're misunderstood, when we're misrepresented, when we're maligned, when we feel that we are trapped in a situation that we cannot control, do we humbly and honestly lay ourselves before the Lord? Do we ask Him to examine us? Do we ask Him to show us if we've done anything wrong in this situation? Because here's what I've learned when I've been misunderstood, misrepresented, and maligned. There's a Pharisee inside of every single one of us. And we think the fault always lies with someone else. And every time I've come honestly before the Lord in a situation like this, I've always found something that I needed to confess and repent of. And David understood that. And he was honest before the Lord. But we not only see his honesty before the Lord. In verses 6 through 9, we see David's waiting upon the Lord. This is what he writes. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. In verses 6 through 9, David entrusts himself to God as he waits for God to rally to his defense and to act in judgment. Now notice in verse 6 that there is a triplet request for the righteous anger of God to overpower the unrighteous fury of David's enemies. Do you see it? It's a progression. He says, first of all, arise, O God. And we saw this in a previous psalm. It refers back to Numbers 10, 35, and 36, where the people of God would cry out as the Ark of the Covenant of God went before them into battle. And so David is giving a war cry, and he's saying, Arise, God, go before me and deal with this matter. And then secondly, he says in verse 6, God, lift yourself up. And finally, he says, Awake for me. Literally, take action on my behalf, God. Now, we need to remember what Psalm 121 teaches us, that the Lord never sleeps nor slumbers. So David is not suggesting to us that God is asleep at the wheel of the concerns of his life, and he doesn't know what's going on, and David is trying to wake him up. It reminded me as I was studying these verses of a trip to Nepal where we went to the Buddhist temple in Kathmandu. And they had all kinds of bells around the temple grounds and they would ring the bells to wake the gods up so they would hear the people pray. And David is not suggesting that God needs to be awakened and filled in with what's going on in his life. No, God never sleeps. God never slumbers. What David is doing is urging God to take action now. And in verse 7... He uses legal terminology and he calls for God to summon his enemies to court so that they can be judged and he can be publicly vindicated. 
Look at verse 7. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. In this verse, David is picturing a judgment scene in which God has gathered all the nations of the earth before him. And then from on high, he carries out his judgments. This picture that David describes in verse 7 is an anticipation of what Paul would say in his sermon in Athens in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. This is what Paul preached in those verses. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Well, friends, do you hear what Paul said? It's the same thing that David is saying in verse 7, that God has fixed and appointed a day of judgment. And we know this day of judgment is fixed and true because God has proven it's true because he raised his son from the grave. And because Jesus is raised from the grave, we know that a day of future judgment is coming. And it is a reminder to every single one of us in this room that all of us have a date with deity. Every single one of us is going to stand before God who created us and give an account of our lives. And on that day, God is going to make everything right. In verse 8, David prays that the Lord would judge him in this tribunal, in this court scene, according to his righteousness and according to his integrity. Once again, David is not claiming to be sinless, but he's claiming to be blameless of the slander that is thrown at him. And he's appealing his case to God, who is the judge of all, who has all of the evidence in the case. And God knows everything there is to know about David. And so he's entrusting his case to the God who judges justly. And then finally, in verse 9, David shifts from personal language to corporate language. He asks God to bring an end to the evil of the wicked and to establish the righteous. And David seeks this justice and this ruling of God because he knows that God is the one who tests the minds and the hearts. That phrase, minds and hearts, literally refers to hearts and kidneys. It's used to describe the innermost part of our lives. David is saying, God is the one that has to come to the court scene and bring just judgment because God and God alone is the only one who knows the thoughts and the intentions and the motives and all of the secret things in our lives. It reminds me of what Warren Wiersbe said. When somebody slanders you or says something bad about you, just be glad they don't know you the way Jesus does. They'd really have something to say about you. And that's David's point. It's his point. I'm waiting on God to summons the courtroom. I'm waiting on God to bring all the peoples of the earth before him. And in that day, God who knows everything about me is going to judge me based on my integrity. He's going to judge me based on my character. He's going to judge me based on what he knows to be true about me. And on that day, I will be vindicated. It's important that you understand what's happening here in the text, friends. David is not taking matters into his own hands, which all of us are tempted to do. How many times have you said when you've been in a situation like David, if I could just talk to him and if I could just reason with them and I could just help them to understand how they're wrong and I'm right. And then I would say to you, how has that worked out for you in those situations? No, David did not take matters into his own hands. He entrusted God to bring vengeance and to make things right. He submitted to God and waited for him to act. And the reason why we don't do this is because we don't like to wait. But he waited. And I want you to see in this text this morning something very powerful, friends. David's actions point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize this morning that Jesus was the ultimate falsely accused man? That no one has ever faced worse injustice than Jesus Christ?
and that no one has ever been as good as Jesus Christ and hated so vehemently. Jesus, the Bible says, came to this earth to do good. And because of his ministry, the lame walked, the deaf heard, the blind saw, the mute spoke. Never was there a man on earth like this Jesus. Never was there a man who did the wonderful works of God that Jesus did. And yet the people of his day, the religious leaders, they accused him of being in uh, company with Satan and that he got the power to do his mighty works through Satan's power. He was accused by false witnesses at his trial and he was given the most excruciating, humiliating judgment, that of crucifixion. And yet through it all, do you know what the Bible says that Jesus did, how he responded to all of this? He entrusted himself to God and he waited for God to bring vengeance. Peter described it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's just what David did. And that's just what you and I need to do. And because Jesus obeyed his father and endured false accusations and unjust treatment at the hands of his wicked enemies, David has secured our salvation and David has secured, or Jesus has secured our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, do you realize this morning that he faced the judgment of God for your sin so that you could experience his righteousness and be set free? That's what Christ has done for us. And both the example of David and the example of Jesus Christ challenge us to wait upon the Lord and allow God to execute perfect judgment on our behalf because His judgment is always right. And Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, why we can wait on his judgment and why his judgment is always right. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. That's why we wait for vindication. God is going to take the secret things. God is going to take the dark things. God is going to take the hidden things and he is going to bring them all to light. And God is going to search the purposes of every heart and the motives of every heart. And then, and then only will he bring final just judgment. And when you're innocent, did you hear what Paul said? You will receive your commendation from God. And friends, what I want you to understand this morning, don't miss this. If you face the God of the universe, your creator, the giver of your life, in your sin, in your own strength, instead of in his son, Jesus Christ, you will not be commended on that day. You will be condemned to final judgment forever separated from God. The only way you will receive God's commendation is if he looks at you and judges you in his son, Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, your sins in the secret places of your heart and the darkness that you've tried to cover up has already been to light through the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when you repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your Savior, God looks at you and He now sees His Son. And it is only in His Son in which you will find your commendation from Him. 
And that's why you wait and you trust and you cast yourself on Christ and Christ alone. And the difficulty is it's in those times when God seems inactive that we become most impatient. And we want to see things resolved immediately and we take matters into our own hands. But I'll remind you this morning that God is more long-suffering than you are. And you have to wait for him to work in his time. Do you really think this morning, do you really think, friend, this morning, in the issue that you're dealing with and struggling with, that you know better than omniscience? Do you really? He's already declared the end from the beginning. How in the world could you think you're wiser than God? Oh, you wait for him, and you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. That ridicule that you're experiencing in the workplace because you're a Christian, it's not final judgment. The difficulties that you're going through in your home because your spouse is an unbeliever and is making it difficult for you to pursue God, it's not over yet. It's not final judgment. Wait upon God. Trust Him. Pour your heart out honestly before Him. You have no idea how He might work in this situation for your good and for His glory. Cast your care upon Him. He will sustain you. That's David's encouragement to you today, friends. Well, we not only see David's honesty before the Lord in his waiting upon the Lord. In verses 10 to 16, we see David's trust in the Lord. Uh, look at this language carefully. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. In these verses, a shift takes place from the courtroom in verses 6 through 9 to the battlefield. And God, David describes God as a victorious warrior. He says that God is a righteous God, but that God is also a God of war. He is a God who protects his people. He is a God who conquers sin. And he is a God who brings unrepentant sinners to destruction. Now notice what he does in verse number 10. He says that God is his shield, and as David's shield, God would deflect all the fiery darts of false accusation that are hurled against him. He would save his servant who is upright in heart. And we've seen this picture before. The shield is a full-body shield. And so David has all these accusations flying around him. He has all of his enemies surrounding him, and he's feeling pressed in. And he says, God, I'm waiting on you to judge. You are a just judge. You're going to bring vindication. You're going to make everything right. And until then, you're my shield. I'm standing behind you. And you're going to take on all of the fiery darts of accusations that are hurled against me. You're going to save me, God. Because you know I'm upright in heart. And then in verse 11, David says that because God is a righteous judge... He does not wait for final judgment to express his anger. Look carefully at this verse, friends. He is a God who feels indignation every day. He is a God who feels anger every day. It is quite a picture from the God the world would have you believe. The God the world would have you believe is a God who is nothing but love. And as long as you're okay and fulfilling what you want for your life, fulfilling what you think God has created you for, fulfilling how you think God has created you, he's good with that because he loves you. God is a God of love, friends. But as this text says, he is a God of anger. He is a God of wrath. 
And he feels anger towards sin and sinners every single day. I want you to listen to John Phillips' description of verse 11. The word for anger in this verse, he says, comes from a verb meaning to foam at the mouth. Listen, even the best day that dawns on a sinner is still a day with the curse of God resting upon it. He goes about his business as though God did not exist. He indulges his lust and God is angry with him. The sinner may have many a self-satisfying day, but he never has a safe day. Did you hear that? You may be self-satisfied in your sin, but you never have a day that's safe if you're not right with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, God foams at the mouth. Between the sinner and the wrath of God is nothing but the beating of the sinner's heart. And the only thing that keeps that going is God's sovereign grace. Oh, dear friend. You need to hear the weight of these words. It's just what I read in a Puritan prayer this week where the Puritan author was praying and thanking God that while he was living in his sin and living for his pleasure and ignoring God and rejecting God, even in his sin, God had mercy and grace upon him and kept him alive and kept him from dying in his sin so he wouldn't go to hell forever. And that's exactly what John Phillips is saying. And that is exactly the picture of verse 11 is giving you. That God hates sin. God hates sin because it mars His glory. And God's desire is to get glory from your life. And because God hates sin when you stay in your sin and you reject Him. And you don't turn to Christ for your salvation. Anger. Wrath. Just wrath and anger and judgment for your sin heaps up on your life every day. And the only thing that is keeping you from experiencing the wrath of God is His grace to keep you alive. But there's coming a day when that grace will be no more. And if God is not your shield, you will experience the full wrath of God for sin. It is, a, listen, it is true, it is theologically true that judgment is being stored up for the future day. But I want you to see this morning that it is also theologically true that wrath and judgment is being stored up every day. Every day. Then in verses 12 to 13, David says that in his display of vengeance, God would not relent or turn back from pursuing his wrath. Look at at how he describes it. He's prepared his deadly weapons. He's sharpened his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. He has flaming arrows. And David is showing us that the only way to flee from God's wrath is to flee to him for his grace. It's only in his grace that you will escape his wrath. And then finally, in verses 14 to 16, using language similar to James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, David paints a sober picture of how sin works and how it ends. Look at how he begins in verse 14. Don't miss it. Behold, he's wanting to make sure that you're paying attention and you've not fallen asleep through all of the truth that he's discussed with you because this may be one of the most important things that he shows you. Behold, pay attention. He uses two images in verses 14 to 16. He uses the image of conception and birth, and he uses the image of digging a pit and falling into it. In verse 14, David describes a wicked person as being pregnant with evil, and because evil has filled him up on the inside, it eventually conceives mischief, and then eventually it gives birth to lies. It's the progression of sin. It starts small, and it takes over your whole life. That's what he's showing us. Then the second image in verses 15 and 16 shows us that sin does not produce the desired results. It never fulfills what it promises. He says it's like a person who digs a pit and hollows it out to catch an animal only to fall into the hole themselves and be trapped. It's the picture that Proverbs 5.22 says. 
the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held captive by the cords of his own sin. Oh, you think you're in control of sin, only to find out at the end that sin is now in control of you, and you're ensnared by your sin. It's what Paul described in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. What he's saying is that God will take the evil and the consequences of sin away from the innocent and heap it back on the wicked. It's a reversing. Some commentators described it as a boomerang. And David's enemies think that they're pouring all of this on him only to find out that God's going to shift the story and turn it all back around on them. David trusted in the Lord for his victory. Are you? If you're an unbeliever today, would you take seriously these pictures and warnings of judgment and turn to Christ? By God's grace... He's seen fit to have you in this room this very morning hearing these verses as a warning of what awaits you if you don't come to Christ. Would you not wake from your slumber today, unbeliever, and hear and heed this warning? Well, look at how he closes this psalm in verse 17. We see David's worship of the Lord. It's very simple. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. It ends on a high and celebratory note. It closes with thanksgiving, and it closes with praise. David exalts the Lord not because sinners will be judged justly, but because the righteousness of God will be magnified. At the end of everything that David has poured out, in this psalm, David is not elevating the justice of God. He is elevating the righteousness of God. And he is saying even in God's just actions towards sin and sinners, God is righteous above all things. And he is to be thanked and he is to be praised. And you need to understand in verse 17 that nothing has changed for David on the outside. But everything has changed for him on the inside. He has been honest before the Lord. He's asked the Lord to search him and examine him. And the Lord has changed the story in David's life. He has a fresh perspective on the righteousness of God. And David understands what you and I need to understand, that the righteousness of God is our only hope. It's our only certainty. It's our only confidence today, tomorrow, and on the last day. It is a confidence that God will do justly what is right in every single one of our lives. And David says the only response to the righteousness of God is thanksgiving. So maybe, maybe in your bemoaning, of everything that is going on around you in the world and in your life, instead of bemoaning, maybe you should get a renewed perspective on the righteousness of God who will judge justly and give him thanks. And notice what else he does. He sings praises to the Lord Most High. The Most High God, the El Elyon, the Sovereign God of the universe. Friends, do you understand this morning? This is the God we've gathered to worship. That this is the God that we have gathered to praise. That this is the God we've gathered to thank. That this is the God that we've gathered to surrender. He is the Most High God. He is the El Elyon. And He is worthy of every note of thanksgiving. He is worthy of every song of praise. He is worthy of every surrender. And He is worthy of every sacrifice. And David understood it. And in Psalm 92, verses 1 through 4, David says this. And oh, by the way, in the superscription of Psalm 92, do you know what it says? It's a psalm for the Sabbath. And this is what he says. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by my night. 
to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, and at the works of your hands I sing for joy, thanksgiving and praise. He's the Most High God. He is sovereign over all things. Everything, everyone bows before this Most High God. And so whatever is troubling you, it is already under him. Don't you just love the Psalms? <laughs> if you don't get anything else out of this, I hope you grow to love these Psalms. Dale Ralph Davis said, it's all quite a cycle, isn't it? Trouble always leads to more Psalms. Don't you love that? Trouble always leads to more Psalms. Trouble drives us to God so that we can place it before him. And then when he delivers us from trouble, we go back to him with praise. Whether in tears or in triumph, we never get away from worship, from having to deal with God. Troubles always lead to Psalms. It's a cycle. Friends, do you have the confidence of David? That God in his time and in his way is going to do everything that is just and right in your life and in the world? Are you trusting this most high God today for your vindication? Are you trusting him for your healing? Are you trusting him for your security? Are you worshiping him while you're waiting on him to act? Here's what I know this morning. If you live in this world long enough and you attempt to do anything for God, you're going to be misunderstood, you're going to be misrepresented, and you're going to be maligned. And in those moments, you should follow the example of David in his song for the slandered. And you should come honestly before the Lord. You should wait upon Him. You should trust in Him for your vindication, your protection, and your deliverance. And you should worship Him. After all, the Apostle Paul said it best, didn't he? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray.